Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Dead America, Portland. Dead America, the first week, book seven. Written by Derek Slayton. Narrated by P.J. Morgan. Chapter one. Day zero plus six. Smells good, Zion said as he entered the kitchen of the small apartment he shared with his sister, Monique. She grinned. Eggs and potatoes, just like Mama used to make. Her brother pulled up a stool and sat on it, his linebacker build looking almost comical on such a small seat at the island counter. Monique couldn't help but chuckle at him as he audibly moaned while shoveling potatoes into his mouth. She was five years older, and even in their twenties, it was hard not to see the little boy he used to be. She filled her own plate and faced him, standing at the island to eat her own breakfast. I hope Mama's doing okay, she said quietly, pushing her eggs around with a fork. Zion stopped shoveling and reached out to grasp her hand. Mo, you know she's fine. Ty is taking care of Compton, there's no way he isn't. It's probably locked down tighter than a drum with our old gang holding the fort. Yeah, she pursed her lips. I just can't help but feel like we should be there with her. If we hadn't left, if we hadn't left, then she'd have been mighty disappointed in me, Zion cut in. Escaping the gang life was best for both of us, and you know that. Mama knew it, and that's why she wanted me to take you away from Los Angeles. I know, Monique replied with a sigh. It's just, if I'd had known the apocalypse was going to happen, I maybe would have stayed, or brought her with us. It would have been nicer to be together. Nobody could have predicted this, Zion said with a shake of his head. Don't beat yourself up over it. Monique took a bite of her potatoes and decided to change the subject. How'd everything go out there last night? It was quiet, her brother replied with a shrug. Few stragglers here and there, but this place is secluded enough that we don't get many zombies out here as long as we don't make too much noise. I guess it's a blessing that the city lost funding for this area. His sister replied thoughtfully. I mean, it was nice that the place was so cheap, but it was going to be nice to have shops and stuff being built around here. I remember feeling like it was really too bad that we didn't move into the city instead of this apartment building in the middle of the woods. Definitely better we ended up here, Zion agreed. If we'd have been in the city, that would have been a whole different ball game during the outbreak. Yeah, Monique nodded. There was a light knock on the door and Zion put up a hand to his sister before walking over to answer it. Hey, Z, Calvin greeted, running a hand through his shaggy brown hair. He was a wiry little guy, the same age as Zion, but probably a third of his weight. I'm working on a new project, and I could use your help. I'm not interested in your projects, Zion replied, though not unkindly. There's more to our survival right now than your weed plants. Plus, we're going on a run this morning, in case you forgot. That's the thing, I got rid of the weed plants, Calvin replied, putting up his hands. The maintenance closet was full of all kinds of vegetable seeds. I guess the original plan for this place was to grow food as foliage in one of the courtyard gardens. 
I figured if we change my grow-up into an indoor farm, we'll be set for fresh food. Monique nodded her approval from behind Zion, who stared in shock at the stoner. My apartment is pretty much just a giant greenhouse now, Calvin continued. Brent said that we can grab more lights on our outing today so I can start retrofitting other apartments. That's... Zion shook his head. That's great. He turned to Monique and pulled her into a hug, planting an affectionate kiss on her forehead. Thanks for breakfast. Be careful, she replied, worry knitting her brows. He smiled. Always. He left the apartment and closed the door behind him. Dude, your sister is so gorgeous, Calvin groaned as they wandered towards the stairwell and then clapped his hands over his mouth, fear widening his eyes as if he hadn't meant to say it. Zion just laughed. Man, she would chew you up and spit you out again, he assured him. Keep that in mind if you ever get the bright idea to say that to her face. I thought I was going to die just there, Calvin admitted. Again, Zion said, an amused smirk on his face. Keep that feeling in mind if you ever decide to hit on my sister. I don't need to threaten you. She could kill you with her bare hands. Calvin gulped. Is it bad that makes her even hotter? Ugh. The bigger man rolled his eyes. You white boys are suckers for punishment. He shook his head. What's the mission today anyway? He asked, changing the subject as they descended the stairs. We're heading to that strip mall just off the interstate, about 10 miles away to the north, Calvin explained. Just a regular supply run, but also for lights for more farming. Would have been nice to sleep in after my night shift, Zion muttered. His companion shrugged. There's just not enough people fit to fight. You'd think there would be in a building that can house 70 people, but I guess years of office jobs have made him weak over time. The bigger man raised an eyebrow as he opened the door to the main floor, eyeing up the wiry stoner. And you're in fighting shape, he teased. Hey, I work out, Calvin replied, flexing lean muscles in his bicep. Besides, facing off against zombies is more about determination than strength. Zion shrugged. You're probably right about that, but strength sure helps. I like having you watch my back, dude, the shorter man declared. Zion grinned. Remember that if you ever think about hitting on my sister. Chapter Two The duo stepped into the armory on the way outside, which was the repurposed security office. When the apocalypse had hit, They'd gathered every weapon they could find in the entire building and put it in here, then added to it as they went on scavenging runs. What can I get for you boys? The older gentleman attending the armory asked as they walked in. I'll take one of them hunting rifles, please, Calvin said politely, pointing at the one he wanted on the wall. Grew up shooting game with my pops, he said to Zion, growing up in the country and all. Ah, oh, is that where the weed plants came from then? The bigger man raised an eyebrow. Learned to grow them on the farm? Calvin laughed. Yeah, actually, family business. Growing is better out there, but selling was definitely better in town. Too bad you had to tear down the family business to grow food instead, Zion said. His wiry companion shrugged. Gotta do what we gotta do in the apocalypse, dude. The older gentleman manning the armory slid a handgun across the desk he stood behind and Zion pursed his lips with distaste. A black man comes in here and you just assume he's good with a handgun, huh? He asked, and then slid the gun back. 
I prefer a more hands-on approach. He walked around the desk and took an aluminum bat off of the wall, along with an ornate-looking dagger. It had definitely been someone's showpiece, and he checked it to make sure that it wasn't a cheap replica. It was plenty sharp, and he sheathed it on his belt. A bat and a knife, huh? Calvin mused as they wandered to the stairwell again to head down to the parking garage. Zion nodded. Neither of them run out of ammo, he explained, and they're only loud if I want them to be. They exited the stairs into the expansive parking garage, where three men stood around two large black vans. Brent whirled around to face the pair, crossing his gigantic arms. He squared his shoulders and looked distastefully at Zion. What took you two so long, he demanded, nostrils flaring. Zion scoffed and turned on his heel, heading back towards the stairs. Brent, man, Calvin said, rolling his eyes. Brent took a deep breath and jogged forward. Z, wait, he called, and his opponent stopped, but didn't turn around. I'm sorry, man, just come on, will you? Zion turned and faced him, raising his eyebrows. He crossed his arms and didn't move. Calvin was telling me on the way down that you don't have a lot of able-bodied people to help with this shit, he said. And I was up all night guarding the perimeter so you fucks could get your beauty sleep. You're welcome. Thank you, Brent muttered and waved him forward. Come on now, please. They rejoined the group, and Calvin shook his head at Zion, who simply shrugged. He wasn't about to take any shit from Brent when he was the one doing him a favor. Corey and I will take the second van. Jerry, the biggest hulk of them all, motioned behind him. Having been a personal trainer before the apocalypse, he was definitely a good guy to have around. Corey was only slightly smaller, being his best friend and coworker at the gym. Brent nodded and headed for the lead van, Zion and Calvin skirting to the passenger's side. Calvin opened the passenger door with a flourish. After you, he declared dramatically. Zion shook his head and climbed up into the seat, jerking the door shut right out of Calvin's hand. He clambered into the middle seat in the back, leaning his gun so that it was accessible as he reached over to slide the door shut. Brent started the vehicle, a somber expression on his face. Zion studied him, and not for the first time. The ex-football player had quite the alpha personality and as soon as shit had hit the fan, he'd taken charge of the motley crew of apartment dwellers. It suited most people, but occasionally he could be a bit of a power-tripping brat, and it was up to men like Zion to put him in his place. He tucked his bat between his legs, reclining his seat a bit to get comfy for their ride. Chapter Three there were only a few straggler zombies that Calvin took out easily from the windows of the vehicle on the way down the long driveway. Not many made it this far, sticking mostly to the city, which was why their complex was a great place to hide out. With the forest, too, it was difficult for zombies to become hordes, as they were too stupid to be able to push through the trees, opting to fall and stagger around instead. When they crested the tree line, Zion surveyed the pillars of smoke, rising from the city proper. Calvin leaned forward from the back seat. Looks like the smoke isn't as bad as it was after all that rain we got, he mused. It had definitely lessened. Zion wasn't sure if that were necessarily a good thing, considering the fires likely took care of a decent amount of zombies. Bright lights also seemed to attract them, 
and keeping the corpses in the city and away from them was a definite plus. However, for survivors, spreading fire could mean even more trouble for those that were stuck down there. The fuckers are slowing down, too, Brent said. I don't know if it's the cold or if they're rotting, but it's getting easier to take them out. Still need to be careful, Zion replied gruffly. If it is that they're just rotting, then any fresh ones will still be fast and strong. Calvin shivered. Doesn't make any fucking sense why they're so strong. They're fucking dead. Zion pursed his lips. Sometimes it was better not to worry about the why behind things one couldn't change. So what's the plan today? He asked, not bothering to turn to Brent. The driver nodded in his periphery. There's a big strip mall about 10 miles north of the city, he began. It's got a hardware store and a big superstore, as well as a few fast food chains, tools, supplies, and food, hopefully. Zombie population should be low, considering that it's not right in the city, so we should be able to just get in and out easy peasy. Zion stifled a snort. Nothing was ever easy peasy, but he didn't feel like arguing. There were cars strewn everywhere along the side of the road, some with zombies stuck inside. Families that had been mortally hurt in accidents and left to turn into the undead with their seatbelts still on, banging at the windows with rotting hands and scraping teeth, desperate to get out and eat something warm and living. The devastation was real. It was easy to forget what it was really like out here in the peacefulness of the apartment complex, which Zion knew was a good thing. That's what he wanted for the residents there, for his sister, to just live without worry while the able-bodied people came out into this carnage to provide for them. The less the others had to experience this insanity, the better. Stores just off the interstate burned, cars smashed into the fronts of them, zombies peppering the landscape and staggering about. These stores had clearly already been looted, or at least what was left of them. It wasn't even worth checking with the shape they were in. Brent exited the highway onto a thin street that led to the strip mall. His mouth set into a grim line as he took in the smashed front doors of both the hardware store and the super center. That doesn't look very promising, Calvin piped up, echoing everyone's thoughts. Brent cut the engine and checked his weapons. Well, we're here, so we might as well check it out, he declared, and opened the driver's side door, sweeping his eyes around for any company as Jerry and Corey turned off their van as well. They grouped in front of the lead vehicle. This looks like a waste of time, Jerry spoke up, sounding defeated. Brent shook his head. Only a waste of an opportunity if we don't use it, he said. We're already here. Since it'll be an easy sweep, we'll split into two teams. Zion, you're with me in the hardware store. Jerry and Corey, you take the super center. Calvin? He turned to the wiry younger man. You climb up on top of the van and keep watch. Don't fire that rifle unless it's an emergency. We don't want to attract any unwanted attention. Aye, aye, sir, Calvin replied with a sloppy salute and tossed his rifle up onto the roof of the van before clambering up himself. He laid down on his stomach, peering around, and the two sets of two broke off towards their respective stores. Chapter Four Jerry stepped through what was left of the busted glass door of the superstore, shaking his head at the carnage inside. We're not going to find shit, he said with a sigh as he waited for Corey to duck in after him. This place is a mess. I miss the good old days, his friend replied with wistfulness in his voice. 
when all we had to worry about was not oversleeping to open the gym. Jerry nodded as they began to move up one of the aisles. And whether or not we were overbooking, and how to get more hot girls to buy gym memberships, Corey smirked. Remember Danielle? The ex-trainer scoffed. Of course I remember Danielle, he replied. How could anyone forget Danielle? I hope you ain't mad, but I gave her a free membership, his friend said with a grin. Jerry chuckled, bumping him with his elbow. No hard feelings, I gave her a lot more than that, he said. Two zombies staggered around the end of a shelf, housing a few random canned goods and not much else, and Corey darted forward to stab the corpses in the head. This isn't going to make much of a difference, Jerry sighed, lifting up one of the cans of tomato sauce. Corey shrugged. Might as well bag it anyway. The girls can work magic with whatever we bring back, you know that. When you're right, you're right, his friend agreed. They bagged up the few cans on the empty shelves and continued on their way. Might as well check out the back, see if there's anything left in the storage area. As they came out the other end of the aisle they were in, they froze at the sound of quick footsteps. That was definitely more deliberate and much faster than a zombie. They both drew their guns, quietly stalking after the noise, until they came to the open door of the employee break room. Jerry gave a silent countdown, and then they both burst inside, guns aimed. Don't shoot, don't shoot, a man screamed. He was dressed in military fatigues, but cowered in the corner with his hands in the air. Who are you, Jerry barked, eyes hard and distrustful, even as Corey lowered his weapon. Please, the man begged. Corey shook his head. We're not gonna shoot you, man, but we need to be careful, okay? You know how it is these days, he said gently. What are you doing here by yourself? Did you go AWOL? The man drew in a deep, ragged breath. Please just bring me back to your camp with you. Please help me. Jerry clenched his jaw. I don't like this. I don't know, Corey shrugged at his best friend. But we can't leave him here. Let's bring him to Brent and see what he says. The ex-trainer took a step back, but didn't stop aiming his gun. All right, get up. We're taking you outside. And that's when we took state for the first time, Brent was saying, as they loaded up a flatbed cart with glass panels and greenhouse lights. Zion tried not to roll his eyes. He wasn't really interested in Brent's glory days on the football field, but they didn't really have anything to talk about. It was easier to let the leader chatter away and give a grunt here or there to let him know he was still semi-listening. Speaking of grunts, two corpses made nearly the same noises as him as they rounded the corner at the end of the aisle. Zion, happy for the distraction, grabbed his baseball bat and easily bashed their brains in, leaving little pops of crimson on the white store wall. So what's your story, man? Brent asked as his companion joined him again. I've heard rumors you were a gang member in California. Zion didn't meet his eyes. Don't believe everything you hear, he said gruffly, pulling down another box of lights. Look, I'm just saying, some of our residents are nervous, his companion said, his voice in that political tone he liked to hold while he felt he was being a diplomat. Zion growled. And what would you do if it were true, huh? He demanded, eyes narrowed. Confine me to a room, kick me out. More grunts, and he turned and headed purposefully to the group of zombies that had been attracted to their noise. 
It took less than 10 seconds to dispatch them all by crushing their skulls, and he turned back to Brent. Blood splattered across his shirt. Or would y'all realize that it's a good thing? The leader took in a breath, seeming to choose his words carefully. But before he could reply, a gunshot sounded from outside. They shelved their argument, and each grabbed one of the overloaded carts, pushing them quickly down the aisles to outside. As they shoved open the front doors, they didn't see much going on. There were no zombies, just Jerry and Corey standing in front of a guy sitting on the ground in military fatigues. They pushed the carts to the van and left them there to assess the situation. What's going on? Brent asked. Calvin stood on top of the van, waving his gun around, eyes wide. I saw a scope in the woods. This guy's a fucking spy. Hey, calm down, the leader said using that diplomat voice again. I'm not going to calm down. We need to put this guy back where he came from and get the fuck out of here, Calvin insisted. Brent's brow furrowed. And where did you come from, he asked. He wouldn't tell us either, Corey said, after it was apparent the guy wasn't going to answer. He just begged us to take him with us back to wherever we live. We should leave him, Zion said firmly. His gut churned at the sight of the guy on the ground and though he was immune to Calvin's panic, there was something very wrong about this situation. No, Brent replied, surprising all of them when he shook his head. We could use a military guy. We need more manpower to defend the complex. Zion raised an eyebrow. The guy didn't look like he had very much manpower left in him. Even a coward who abandoned his duty? We don't know if he did that, Brent replied, steel in his eyes as if he were challenging Zion to continue arguing with him. His unit might have just been overrun. He could be dealing with some traumatic stuff. Then he'll just be a liability, Jerry spoke up. We don't need more people to babysit. What did you find in the superstore? Brent changed the subject abruptly. Corey held up the mostly empty bag of canned goods. Not much. Okay, you two go check out the burger joint over there, and then we'll head out, the leader instructed. The two slunk away, not happy with their dismissal, but not wanting to argue. They had a feeling that Zion would argue just fine for them while they were scavenging. We need to leave him behind, Calvin said again, as he slid down the windshield and hit the asphalt hard on his feet. I don't like this. I don't like it at all. You don't have to like it, Brent snapped. All you have to do is follow orders, and I say he comes with us. Zion clenched a fist. Something is off about him, I don't like it. Look, we can't just do things based on gut feelings, Brent began, that diplomatic drone creeping into his tone once again. I have a responsibility to our people, and it's not easy to be the one who has to make the tough decisions. But somebody has to do it, and that somebody is me. I know what's best for the complex, and what's best is to have the best defense to keep our people safe. I need to- Zion did roll his eyes this time with a scoff. Listen, you condescending, hey, Jerry called as he and Corey approached, hauling a large keg of beer between the two of them. No food, but it wasn't a total loss, he grinned. Brent shook his head. No, we're not lugging that thing around. Zion narrowed his eyes. A real leader would understand the importance of a happy populace. Slight sarcasm laced his tone, and the two stared at each other for a beat before Brent waved his hand. Fine, load up the keg, he relented, and our new friend.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 5 Brent led the vans to the front doors of the apartment complex instead of the underground lot, so that it would be easier to load up the supplies to where they needed to go. Everyone bustled out, and Calvin pulled Zion around to the front of the van out of earshot of the others. I'm heading in to prep another apartment, he said quietly, as if it were some big conspiracy. Zion nodded, and as soon as he left, he headed to the back of the van where their new friend, whose name turned out to be Benny, stood nervously. A few guys came out of the front to help unload the supplies, and Brent pulled Benny out of the way. Come on, I'll give you a tour, he said, not unkindly, and led him along the perimeter of the building. Zion followed at a respectful pace behind, not wanting to be overbearing, but not quite ready to let this guy have his roam of the place yet. He wasn't surprised to find Jerry had joined him, and the two brought up the rear of the guide group. We have a few empty apartments in here that had been bought but never moved into, so we'll get you one of those to stay in, Brent was saying. Eventually, if we find enough survivors, some of the singles will have to double up, which will mean you— all the one-bedrooms are taken already by those that already lived alone and like it that way. So our few empty units are two-bedrooms, which will mean sharing space. There aren't any three-bedroom units here, so no worrying about too many people up in your face all the time. This is where we're growing food for now, he continued, motioning to one of the gardens. We're working on growing food inside for the colder months, with Calvin being an experienced plant cultivator. Jerry snorted. We've got round-the-clock perimeters set up, so no worrying about any zombies coming up here, Brent said, ignoring his comrade. What do you think? It's nice, Benny replied hoarsely. The leader put a gentle hand on the man's shoulder. 
Do you want to talk about what's happened to you? The military man shook his head, jerking back and forth violently, lips pressed in a thin line. Okay, Brent relented with a sigh. Come on, let's find you an apartment. I'll send somebody over with some food for you, too. Zion was glad that Brent didn't do a full tour, as in he didn't show him where the armory was. He didn't trust this guy as far as he could throw him, and showing him the gun cache was a bad idea at this point. They stopped at a second-floor apartment, and Brent unlocked it, opening the door for their new charge. I hang on to all the keys, just in case of an emergency, he explained, pocketing the large key ring. We all share everything anyway, so you don't have to worry about people messing with your stuff while you're out. Get some rest. He smiled, and Benny nodded wearily, closing and locking the door behind him. Brent turned to Jerry with a somber expression. Stay here and keep an eye on this door, he said quietly. If you get tired, make sure that somebody switches off with you. I want 24-hour surveillance here. Zion's shoulders relaxed. He was glad that the leader was at least being careful. I'll come check on you in a few hours, man, he promised, and clapped his friend on the shoulder before heading back to his own apartment. Monique looked like she'd just returned from somewhere as he entered, as she was just setting a pile of books on the kitchen table. She shrugged out of her coat with a smile. You're back sooner than I thought, she said. Her brother nodded. It was a bit of a bust. The stores were looted already. We didn't get much food, but we got a ton of greenhouse supplies. That's something, at least, she agreed, and then furrowed her brow. What is it? We picked up a straggler, he admitted. And there's something off about him. Off how, she asked. Zion shook his head. We all had a bad feeling. He was cowering in the superstore in military fatigues, all sketched out. None of us wanted to bring him back, but Brent insisted. Now even he put a watch on the guy's door because he's being careful. And I just wonder why we even bothered bringing him back. Seems like too big a risk to me. Z, Monique said gently, offering a smile to her brother. I know it's hard to trust people nowadays. Hell, it was hard to trust people before all of this. But there ain't that many people left in the world. When we find those in need, especially when they're alone and vulnerable, isn't it up to us to protect and help them? Otherwise, what kind of world are we building here? One where we survive, Zion thought to himself, but didn't voice this. He knew better than to argue with her. He simply nodded. I'm going to crash for a bit, he said. Wake me up before you head to bed, yeah? I'm gonna go relieve Jerry for overnight. I'll leave dinner out for you, she promised. Chapter Six Zion's eyes shot open at the crack of gunfire outside. Monique burst into his bedroom, stopping short when she saw him sitting up. He dove from the bed, hastily pulling on his jeans from the floor. How did zombies get all the way up here? Monique worried. They, gunshots echoed in the hallways, and her brother's gaze darkened. That ain't zombies, he replied. This fight sounded two-sided. And unless the corpses had figured out how to use guns, then there was no way that this wasn't some kind of attack. Hide. Nosy, you can't, she pleaded, but he grabbed his bat and brushed past her. He cracked open their door and peeked out, screams bouncing around the corridor as he saw men in military fatigues dragging people out of their apartments at gunpoint. He shut the door. Motherfucker, he muttered under his breath, 
and turned to his wide-eyed sister. Hide, now, he demanded, and she nodded jerkily, this time complying with his wishes. She scurried back to the bedroom, and as Zion turned back to the door, it imploded. A burly military man burst in, and Zion immediately lunged for him, bat flying. The guy caught it and wrenched it free of his attacker's grip, going for the throat. Zion ducked, clocking him with an epic uppercut that snapped the meathead's face back. He took the opportunity to dive on top of him, knocking them both to the floor, where he pummeled the holy hell out of the guy's face. There was a sharp pain in the back of his head, and then everything went black. When Zion came to, he was very aware of the cool grass beneath his bare back. He groaned and his sister looked down at him, her expression relieved that he was conscious. He sat up slowly, taking in the clusters of apartment dwellers around him. There were moans and crying and whispered conversations, with more shots and yells from inside in the background. What's going on? He asked Monique quietly, barely audible, eyeing the soldiers standing guard over their group. She took his hand in hers tightly. Looks like the military has taken over, she replied, her voice barely above a whisper. Don't know what they want yet. The gunshot subsided, and a group of army guys poured out of the front doors, the last few stragglers in tow. They dumped the beaten and bloody victims with the rest of the group, and Zion looked around, mouth in a grim line. Nobody looked like they were in very good shape. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the attackers stepped forward, his hands clasped behind his back. His uniform looked freshly pressed, and he didn't have a speck of blood on him. I'm Sergeant Holcomb, and I am in charge of this facility now. He paused for effect, a smile on his face. Zion couldn't help but feel like this guy could give Brent a run for his money in the faux diplomat department. Except this sergeant had some insanity in his eyes that did not bode well for them. Please don't kill us, somebody begged tearfully. Holcomb cocked his head in their direction. Don't worry, I'm not going to kill any more of you than I have to he said, sounding sincere and regretful. I apologize for the theatrics, but I had to make sure that I had you all in one spot and that you understand your place. He began to pace back and forth in front of the group, one hand still behind his back and the other raising to accentuate his speech. You see, in times like this, the end times of the world, there is an opportunity, an opportunity for greatness to rise to the challenge. I am rising to that challenge. I am proving my greatness. And so I am taking this facility. It is mine now. Those of you who are fortunate enough to still have your lives are welcome to stay here, but you must abide by my rules if you are to be my loyal subjects. Obey me, and you will be treated fairly. He paused, clenching his hand into a fist. Defy me or my men, and you will be punished. He snapped his fingers, and a group of his men marched into the crowd to drag certain community members to the sidelines. A soldier with a very broken face jerked Zion up by the arm, shoving him towards the lineup and down onto his knees. Monique leapt to her feet and shoved the soldier, attempting to run to her brother, and he stopped her with a sneer, raising his gun to her chest. Holcomb pushed down on the gun barrel, shaking his head and clucking his tongue. Shooting dissidents is too easy, he said calmly, and the soldier backed off. The sergeant wound his fist into Monique's hair and licked his lips uncomfortably close to her ear. You just earned yourself a spot with these insurgents. 
He shoved her down onto her knees in front of Zion, and she scrambled to her brother, clutching his arm. Holcomb walked to one end of the line, bending to stare with amusement into Brent's seething face. Violence against me or my men will not be tolerated, he declared, and straightened up, pacing back in front of Jerry, then Corey, then Calvin. A zero-tolerance policy, if you wish. There will be no warning. You stay in line or you pay the price, no negotiations or hesitation. He raised his hand and waved to his men. This ragtag group of bandits is going to be made an example of. Take them to the center of the city and leave them there. No, no, please, Tom begged, falling forward on his hands, tears pouring down his cheeks. Please, I didn't mean to take a swing. I was just trying to protect my wife, please. What did I just say? Holcomb clucked his tongue again. Zero tolerance. He stepped to the end of the line, where Zion hadn't moved a muscle, but simply stared daggers up at the sergeant. Maybe in your next life, you'll learn to show your superiors some respect, Holcomb declared. Zion stayed still, eyes hard. Not done with this life yet. The sergeant's eyes widened the slightest bit, and then he straightened, glaring down his nose at what he viewed as scum beneath his boots. Holcomb waved his hand. Exile them. Chapter seven. The group was somber, save for Tom's sniffling, as the military transport began to head down the driveway of the apartment complex. They all sat across from each other, hands tied behind their backs securely. Fucking idiots, Benny cackled from the front seat, hanging into the back to taunt them. You should have gone with your guts, huh? Now you ain't gonna make it till tomorrow. The guy with the busted face that Zion had beaten up drove and glanced over his shoulder to give a smirk that looked more like a grimace to the prisoner in question. You all better be saying your goodbyes to each other, Benny continued in a sing-song voice. Because where we're taking you, you ain't gonna last very long, fucking morons. His voice was a loud, maniacal screech, like nails on a chalkboard. Zion decided he liked him much better when he was playing subdued PTSD soldier. He looked down at his sister's grim expression beside him. He wished better for her, but he couldn't help but feel that she'd be safer with him than back at the complex. Had she been left there by herself, he wouldn't have been there to run any interference, and who knew what these assholes were going to do to the women. As the transport headed into the city, the noise of the engine attracted hordes of zombies. Whew, look at that, Benny exclaimed as they ran over corpses, leaving tons to stagger after them in their wake. They getting ready for their midnight snack. You pussies ready? Ready to be zombie chow? They managed to get ahead of the mob into a large parking deck. Up and up they drove, to the very top of the five-story parkade. They cut the engine, and the only sounds were the heavy breathing of the prisoners and the echoing groans of the dead as they made their way up to claim their meal. Come on now, Benny cried brightly as he opened the back of the transport, grinning ear to ear. Everybody out. When nobody moved, the other guy reached in and grabbed Calvin's shoulder, jerking him out and down to the asphalt. Ain't it a nice night for a picnic, Benny asked. The stars are twinkling away. <laughs> so peaceful here. You're fucking crazy, man, Corey spat as he jumped down from the transport, voice full of venom. Benny laughed and smashed the butt of his gun into Corey's face. Come on now, chocolate, 
he called to Zion, who was taking his sweet time not moving from his seat. The guy with the mangled face ran his fingers through Monique's hair, pressing the barrel of his handgun into her cheek so hard her skin puckered around it. Should I shoot her in the face, he growled, or shoot out a kneecap so that she's easy picking for the zombies? Zion clenched his jaw and got up, shuffling forward to the edge of the truck bed. Benny kicked out as he jumped, knocking his legs out so that he hit the asphalt hard on his side with a grunt. Ta-ta, chumps, Benny proclaimed, waving as he bounded back to the passenger's seat. The mangled-faced soldier shoved Monique down roughly on top of her brother. Zion glared up at him. See you soon, he promised. The soldier sneered and jogged back to the driver's seat, peeling out in a loud display of tire squealing. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Tom began to hyperventilate. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Hey, Brent said firmly, but not unkindly. Calm down, deep breaths. Turn around, man, Corey said to Jerry, and the two shuffled back to back, trying to untie each other. Tom began to rock back and forth. We're gonna die, we're gonna die. No, we're not, it's okay, Brent cooed. How many times have I gotten you out of shit? I got you. Zion looked around and wandered off towards a busted down car on the far side of the lot. Monique furrowed her brow and then jumped at the feel of someone at her back, turning her head to see Calvin shimmying up behind her to do the same as Corey and Jerry. Zion squatted down in front of the car where the front tire was gone and the car rested on a rim and used the jagged metal to cut through his ropes. He stood up and tried the driver's side door, but it was locked. He thrust his elbow into the window, and it shattered upon impact. He reached in to unlock the door and searched the car, finding nothing useful. He popped the trunk and rummaged around, pulling out a tire iron and slamming it closed again. At this point, the group of untied prisoners approached him warily, Tom still blubbering as Brent dragged him along, regrouping next to the busted car. The zombie groans echoed even louder. They didn't have much time. Jerry, head on down the driveway and see how many zombies they are and how close they are, Zion instructed, and his friend nodded, running off. Monique, Corey, Calvin, everyone take a side and look down at nearby buildings to see if there's anywhere we can escape to from up here. They too left, and he turned to Brent. You keep babysitting Tom. Hey, fuck you. The leader of the complex let go of the moaning man, who fell hard on his ass, but didn't seem to notice. Brent crossed his arms. I'm the one in charge. You listen to me, and don't ever- Zion lashed out and gripped his collar, jerking his face inches from his own. His eyes were hard as steel, shocking Brent into stunned silence. Your stupidity fucked us, he said voice low and menacing. You want to be the boss of the complex, fine. But we ain't at the complex no more. You in my territory now, bitch. So either do what I say or get the fuck out of my way. Brent swallowed hard. Hey, Z, Monique called. I found something. Zion let go of the ex-leader and ran to his sister, who was pointing below. There's a building close enough to the second floor. We can jump to the roof, she said. Thousand zombies. Jerry yelled, huffing as he pumped his legs to crest back up to where they were. One floor down, we gotta move. Zion pursed his lips 
as everyone made their way to his and Monique's position, even Brent dragging Tom along. He looked over the edge and took a deep breath. We're gonna have to climb down, he said. Jerry snorted. Are you fucking kidding me? That's some parkour shit. Come on, it'll be just like climbing trees as a kid, Calvin put in, clapping his comrade on the back. Just with a bigger threat of death. No, 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 Tom burst into a fresh set of panicked gasps. I'm pushing 250 and get winded walking to my car. There's no way I can do that. He scrubbed his hands down his face. Zion pointed to the driveway, the shuffling and groaning growing louder and louder. That's your other option, he said firmly. Choice is yours. Chapter Eight So watch me, Zion instructed, gripping the side of the cement wall and hopping over. He anchored his feet against the outside, hanging off of the top with firm hands. I'm going to hang and drop and bounce with my feet off of the next level. That'll make me bounce back, and I'll have to grab on and pull myself up with my hands. Once I'm down there, I'll be there to help catch you. Monique, you come after me. She nodded nervously, but there was trust in her gaze. She knew that her brother would never let her fall. They all leaned over as he let go, bouncing gracefully for his size, and then hopping down, just as he'd said, grasping on to the next level down with his strong hands, and vaulting back over to the floor below. He immediately popped back out, anchoring his body so he could help catch Monique as she dropped down. Come on, he called, and she climbed over the side, letting her legs dangle. She swung a little, just like she'd seen him do, and then dropped, stumbling when her feet landed on the ledge. But her brother grabbed her waist and pulled her in next to him. Calvin, Jerry, and Corey nodded their understanding and went in succession, the latter two finding it fairly easy considering their upper body strength. Like a fucking glove. Jerry fist bumped his best friend, and they shared a grin. Brent went next scowling when Zion had to steady him and get him onto their floor, not wanting to be shown up by the others. When Zion leaned back out, Tom was leaning over, white-faced, staring fearfully down at him. Come on, man, Zion urged. Don't worry, we'll catch you. Tom nodded jerkily, and ever so slowly eased his body over the edge, hanging from his hands. Let go, Zion called. Tom shook his head, unable to make his hands let go. I can't, he screamed. Brent poked his head out to look up at him. It's okay, Tom, let go, we've got you. Tom's heart pounded in his ears, mouth parting in a terrified moan. He squeezed his eyes shut, trying to will away his fear, will away the world. And then a zombie brushed up against his fingers, and the feeling of squishy, rotted flesh caused him to panic letting go of the concrete. The rest of the group watched in horror as Tom plummeted to the roof that was their destination, his head meeting the concrete with a sickening splat. A zombie screeched nearby, and Zion snapped his head around. We got spotted, he warned, and vaulted over to the outside of the wall, repeating his previous movements to get down to the next floor. Monique went next and then Jerry and Corey hopped down simultaneously by themselves, helping to get Calvin and Brent back in. The next floor was even more populated with the backlog of zombies from the street, but from this floor, they'd be able to drop down to the roof that was their escape route and Tom's untimely gravesite. 
Jerry and Corey leapt over first, dropping down and tucking into expert rolls to minimize impact on the concrete. Calvin attempted that and managed, though far less gracefully than his personal trainer friends. Hurry, Zion urged his sister and helped her over the edge. He lowered her hands as far as he could go, giving her a little less of a drop than the others, and she crouched into the landing, safely hitting the ground on her feet. Zion turned to motion for Brent to go next, just as a zombie made a lunge for the ex-leader's arm. He reeled back with the tire iron, ramming it right through the corpse's face. Go, he cried, and Brent hopped over the wall, letting himself hang before dropping down. Zion followed suit, rolling into his own landing. He looked up at the horde on all three floors, pushing up against the walls like lemmings attempting to fall off the edge. Luckily for the group, the cement barricade was too high, trapping the corpses in the parkade. Brent hissed, and Corey hooked an arm under his to help him to his feet. Looks like you rolled it, man, the younger man declared, furrowing his brow. Be careful putting weight on it now. Brent tore his arm away. I'm fine, he muttered, and limped over to Tom. He shook his head as he stared down at the motionless body, glad that the fall had liquefied the man's brain so he wouldn't come back as one of those things. We gotta move, Zion said quietly, and led the group across the roof to the only door, standing a tall silhouette in the early morning light. They moved briskly, Brent skipping to avoid putting too much weight on his ankle and thankfully the door was unlocked. I'll go in first in case there's any resistance, Zion said, holding up the tire iron to accentuate the point that he was the only one with a weapon. He grasped the door handle and opened it a crack, listening for anything. It was quiet inside, and he slowly moved into the stairwell, wandering down onto a massive expanse of cubicles. He strained his ears and didn't hear any shuffling or groaning, so he leaned back into the stairwell and waved the others after him. Daily nine to five grind, Jerry commented as he surveyed the office floor. Everyone spread out. Try to find anything you can use to arm yourselves, Zion instructed, waving his arm. He moved towards one of the floor-to-ceiling windows, squinting out over the street to see if he could get their bearings. This isn't good, Jerry commented from beside him, smacking a metal ruler against his palm. They fucked us, man. It's not going to be easy getting out of here. You know the city better than me, Zion admitted. If it ain't gonna be easy, at least what's the least impossible? Jerry shook his head. We're about four blocks south of the Pearl District, he mused. If we can get over the Willamette River, then we can get out of downtown into residential areas. The 405 is just behind us, right? Zion asked. Corey and Monique wandered over to them each holding metal staplers. Yeah, the 405 is going to be a mess, Corey piped up, inserting himself into the conversation. There's no way we'll make it over there, and it's so open that there is no hiding from zombies kicking around, of which there will be lots. We could try the Broadway Bridge, Jerry replied, pursing his lips in thought. Monique peered out the window to the street. First things first, we need to figure out how to get out of this building, she said. Chapter nine. There were zombies clustered around the front doors of the office buildings, all across the street, nearly shoulder to shoulder. Zion peered over the edge of the roof, 
holding a metal disc they'd found in one of the maintenance closets. He reeled back as if he were about to throw a discus and hucked it up the street in the opposite direction to the way they needed to go. The clang echoed brilliantly, and the zombies immediately turned to look for the source of the noise. As they headed towards it, Zion saw Monique open the front doors of the building, waving everyone out silently into the street. He nodded to her and then took off running for the far end of the roof, vaulting over the edge. He hung for a second before dropping down on top of a dumpster as noiselessly as he could, hopping down into the alleyway below. He smashed in the head of a wayward corpse with his tire iron on the way down, leaving it crumpled next to the dumpster. He took off towards the group on the street in hopes of making it to the Broadway Bridge without detection. It didn't take long, however, to realize that their hopes weren't going to get them very far. They were attracting too much attention by virtue of being such a large group. Brent skipped as quietly as he could behind them, but his rolled ankle wasn't doing him any favors. Zion made it to them, taking the lead and busting a few heads in the process. He shoved one corpse into another, knocking a few over like bowling pins, able to clear a path for them to continue block after block. When they barreled around the corner to head towards the bridge, however, they skidded to a stop. At least a thousand zombies turned towards them all at the same time in a horrifying synchronized display. Guys, Jerry cried as he and Corey fended off the zombies clustering in the rear. Brent swung with the two-by-four he'd found in the maintenance closet, taking one down, but at least a dozen descended on Corey. No, Jerry screamed, diving for his friend who disappeared under a mass of bodies, and Brent grabbed his arm to keep him from needlessly fighting into his own death. Back up, Zion cried, motioning to the only open space that would back them against a building. Look for an open window, something, he called to Monique and Brent, as he, Jerry, and Calvin attempted to fend off the oncoming horde. Inside, a voice boomed from a nearby rooftop, and Zion looked up to see a silhouette motioning to his left. About 20 yards away, there was an unbarred window. This way, he bellowed, leading the charge to the window. He continued to slash and stab and swing with his tire iron, clearing a path for the group to the building. He managed to reach the window and throw it open, stabbing a corpse to use as a barrier so that Monique and Calvin could boost Brent inside. They hopped in after him. Jerry, let's go, Zion yelled, but the ex-personal trainer was blind with rage, smacking down corpses in retribution for the death of his best friend. Jerry, the horde was closing in fast, and soon there wouldn't be a path for him to get to the window. Zion jumped up inside as the barrier he'd made crumpled under five zombies and watched as Jerry swung around, his eyes widening with the realization that he'd waited too long. The sea of zombies between himself and the window was too thick. The remaining quartet watched with horror as he fought valiantly, but was quickly overtaken by the hungry corpses. Zion clenched his jaw and slammed the window shut with more force than was necessary drowning out the happy groans of the munching zombies. He didn't say a word, only clenched his jaw as he pushed past them further into the building. It looked like it had been a machine shop once upon a time. The big bay doors had a few CNC lathing machines stacked up against them as a barricade, 
and a stern-looking older man with a shotgun stood at the base. His shoulders were square, and his gun aimed at the group. His face betrayed no emotion. What in the ever-loving fuck were you doing out on the streets? He demanded, voice gruff with age. Our home was overtaken by a power-tripping military maniac, Zion replied, keeping his own shoulders back, tire iron firm in his hand. We resisted, so his lackeys dumped us in the middle of the city as punishment. The man let out a deep breath and lowered his gun, scratching the back of his head. That'll be Holcomb, I bet, he said. As soon as the zombies started slowing down, they rolled up through town, killing everyone they could find and taking their goods. We saw what they did to a neighboring group a few days back. It wasn't pretty. As he spoke, a small cluster of people came out of the shadows, all dressed in the same navy coveralls as the old man. They don't just kill people. They got creative. Well, it seems like they've found their new home, Monique said bitterly. Our apartment complex. It's full of people that can barely fend for themselves. Now those soldiers are there, having exiled those of us who were taking care of the place. God knows what the hell they're putting our friends through right now. Probably nothing pleasant, the man replied grimly. Come on, we don't have much in the way of supplies, but you can have some water. He motioned for them to follow, and his group led the newcomers into what looked like it might have been a break room at one point. Name's Adam. I'd say it's a pleasure to meet you all, but these aren't exactly pleasant times. Well, it's a pleasure on our end, Calvin piped up. If we hadn't have met you, we would have been zombie chow. Ain't that the truth, Zion added quietly. Monique reached the table first, where a middle-aged woman handed her a few bottles of water. Thank you for your hospitality, she said with a smile. Adam narrowed his eyes at Brent. Why are you limping? he asked suspiciously. Brent scowled. Don't worry, he ain't bit, he just rolled his ankle, Monique said quickly, and Zion leaned back against the wall, letting her act the mediator. These people weren't warriors, they didn't need intimidation. They were just a scared group trying to survive the apocalypse. He knew his sister's gentler bedside manner would be more appropriate here. The woman who'd handed over the water took a step forward. Have a seat then, she offered, pulling out a chair. You a doctor? Brent raised an eyebrow. She deadpanned. Former middle school nurse, she replied flatly, as if challenging him to say something. Beggars can't be choosers, he muttered in typical Brent fashion, and she pursed her lips as she sat down across from him, lifting his leg none too gently into her lap. Monique couldn't help but crack a smile as he tried not to grimace. She startled when she realized Calvin was standing a hair away from her elbow and raised her eyebrows at him. He crossed his arms, jutting out his chin, as if he were a wiry little kid playing at being a bodyguard. She shook her head and chuckled, taking a seat and unscrewing one of the bottles of water. Adam's brow furrowed as Zion walked over to the far side of the room, digging through a pile of discarded scrap metal in the corner without even asking permission. Monique sighed. His gang enforcer mentality seems to have kicked back in she explained. We're originally from California, and he ran with some pretty dangerous people. He's done shit you can't even begin to imagine. She put up a hand. Don't worry, he's reformed. She paused and chewed her lip for a moment. At least, he was before our home was taken from us. 
Adam stroked the silver stubble on his chin and rested his shotgun on his shoulder, strolling over to the far corner where Zion was still digging for a weapon. Your sister tells us you were in a gang, he said. The other man didn't look up, tossing aside a bent hubcap. I was an enforcer, he said with a grunt as he reached for a chunk of rebar, but frowned when he saw it was too short. He straightened up. I don't like guns. Too quick, too deadly. I wanted the people I was punishing to remember me. I wanted them to live with their busted up fucking limbs and remember never to cross my boys again. That said, he raised his chin. I'm looking to make an exception this time, on the living part. I can imagine, Adam replied with a nod. I wouldn't be too happy if anyone hurt my family and took my home from me. He paused. What's your weapon of choice? Aluminum bat, Zion replied immediately. He swung an invisible one for effect. I love the fucking ping sound it makes when it cracks against a skull. The old man couldn't help but crack a smile at that. Well, I don't have a bat, but if you give me an hour or so, I think I can whip something up for you. Unless you have a secret exit, we ain't got nothing but time, Zion said with a shrug. Adam's eyes sparkled. As a matter of fact, I do have a secret exit, but you're going to want to hang out for a bit. His new friend nodded in intrigued appreciation and extended his hand. The old man shook it with an affirmative smile. Adam selected a four-foot-long by eight-inch-wide hunk of metal and brought it over to a welding table outside of the break room. Zion followed him, watching in quiet interest as he set it down, inspecting it. There were holes along the center of it, as if at one point there had been rods that would slip through it like a shelf. Adam pulled the short side to the edge of his table and used the torch to bore a hole up into the metal. He pulled a thinner, round, solid rod from a pile of scrap next to the table and worked it into the still warm hole until it was buried securely inside. He welded it together and then plunged it into a bucket of dirty cooling water to set it. Zion watched as he wandered over to a nearby tool chest and pulled out a roll of duct tape, wrapping it around the handle he'd just fastened to make sure no jagged edges would irritate the wielder's hand. Sorry, the tape might make the handle a little sticky, Adam said, as he held the makeshift club out to his new friend. But we work with what we've got. Zion offered a rare smile. No worries, I plan on baptizing it in blood soon enough. I'd be happy to add some spikes to it when we have more time, Adam added, and Zion nodded appreciatively. But for now, the older man continued as he wiped his hands on an old rag. We have a basement exit that leads to a neighboring building. Both of these buildings used to be a multi-level factory. We can create a distraction over here to give you a chance to get outside and head north from over there. We know another group north of the river that are friendly and can help you get back home. Zion nodded, eyes sincere. Thank you, he said, and put a hand on his new friend's shoulder. We'll be in touch. Chapter 10 Zion peered out of the double doors of the neighboring building. It looked out into a quiet side street, though there were a few zombies milling about. It appeared that whatever the others had done to distract the horde had worked, and these few were definitely preferable to the sea that had been here before. 
He burst out of the door and swung his brand new weapon at the nearest corpse, knocking its head nearly from its body. He grinned as the zombie crumpled to the ground, neck lolling at an impossible angle, and waved for the group to follow him as he swung at corpse after corpse, heading north. They stayed low when they crested the alley, keeping behind busted cars and trying to stay silent so that the horde didn't come back towards them. A few times, Zion felt as if he had to hold his breath. They passed so close to a few groups. As much as he wanted to leap out, weapon blazing, and take out as many of the fuckers as he could, he knew he had a duty to get his group home so they could save it, and they wouldn't be able to do that by taking unnecessary risks. There was a little cafe across from the bridge, and Zion peered inside, seeing no movement. He opened the door and waved for the others to follow him so they could regroup before making their way across. It's bumper to bumper out there, Monique pursed her lips as she looked out at the bridge, arms crossed. And there are tons of zombies, and those are just the ones we can see. We could swim, Brent offered the idea as he sat down on one of the bar stools. Calvin snaked behind the counter and dug around for a drink, finding a few unopened cans of cola. I think it's a little cold for that, bud, he said as he set a can in front of the ex-leader. Here, have a can of sugar and let's rethink that strategy. Brent scowled as he popped the tab on the can, taking a long sip and enjoying the burn on the back of his throat. Can we go under the bridge? Monique asked. Is there a walkway? Calvin shook his head. No, ma'am, there is not, he replied, walking out from behind the bar to hand her a can. She thanked him and opened it, resuming staring out at the bridge of writhing, hungry monsters. We'll go over the cars, Zion finally said, after chucking his own can of soda. We're going to have to be quick, though. It'll attract a lot of attention with the noise, and we're gonna have to haul ass that five blocks to where Adam's friends are. So he says, Brent muttered. Zion didn't bother answering him, because he knew that it was a risk. Those people hadn't given them any reason to distrust them, but this was the apocalypse, and to trust too easily was to die quickly. They would have to be careful. If there was help there, then great. But if not, then they'd just keep going. Calvin let out a grunt as he crushed his empty soda can, grinning at Monique's unimpressed but amused expression at the faux manly gesture. We ready to go then? He asked. Let's ride out this sugar high. We go two by two, Zion instructed. Brent, you're with me on the left row of cars. Monique and Calvin, you're on the right. Stay focused, be fast, but make sure to know your footing. The group nodded, and Brent put a little weight on his bad foot to test it out. It wasn't perfect, but the pseudo-nurse had done a good job strengthening it a little. They readied the pipes they'd salvaged from the factory and followed Zion as he stepped out onto the sidewalk. Ready? he hissed, and go. He took off at a sprint towards the cars, clambering up onto the trunk of the first sedan. Calvin kept pace with him, and Monique and Brent took up the rear of their respective rows. The zombies immediately figured out their meals were running over top of their heads and started attempting to get there. One managed to flop onto a low hood, and Zion leapt down from the roof, crushing its head with his weapon and kicking the corpse to the side so that none of the others could use it as leverage. 
Calvin whacked two corpses back from the trunk of a Cadillac, glancing over his shoulder to make sure Monique was keeping up with him. She waved him off, urging him with a hand to hurry up. We're halfway, Zion called, as he thwacked the head off of another zombie and glanced back, just in time to see Brent trip over a flailing arm. The ex-leader screamed as he hit the back window of a compact SUV, the zombie tearing into his calf as he went down. Zion scrambled back over the vehicle, grabbing Brent by the back of his shirt to haul him up onto the roof. Fuck, 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 Brent babbled as he clutched at his knee, fear evident in his eyes. Zion clenched his jaw, offering his hand. The ex-leader smacked it away. You gotta kill me, man. I don't wanna become one of those things, he begged, voice strained. And I don't wanna slow you down either. You gotta save our home. He reached up and clutched at the bottom of Zion's shirt, eyes pleading. His comrade nodded and stepped back, tightening his hand around his weapon. Promise me you'll rescue our people, Brent whispered, as he let his hands fall to his sides, preparing for death. Zion raised his weapon high above his head, with a firmly sincere expression in his eyes. You can count on it. And then he cracked Brent's skull open. Chapter 11 Fucking Brent, man, Calvin moaned as they hit the asphalt on the other side, still shell-shocked from so abruptly losing their ex-leader. Monique shoved him from behind. Later, we gotta move, she cried, the zombies easily staggering out of the traffic jam to follow them. Zion darted into the residential street at full speed, leading the last two remaining survivors of their ragtag group of exiles into suburbia. His legs screamed as they pumped, outrunning the horde that, though slower, was large enough that they needed to put as much distance between them as they could. This has gotta be it, he huffed, as a makeshift fortress came into view. It was a set of six houses, all with high privacy fences around the back halves, the middle two reinforced with busted cars and sheet metal. In the middle, someone had built up the gate between the two center houses, two guards standing on top of a seemingly well-built guard tower. Let us in, please, Monique shrieked as they reached the front lawn. Zion stopped to smash a few zombie skulls of stragglers to give them a few extra minutes. Calvin banged on the wooden gate. Please, man, come on, Adam sent us up here, open the gate, please. One of the guards' eyes widened at the sight of the thick horde of zombies groaning their way up the street. He lifted a radio to his mouth. Permission to open the gates, he said, and Monique and Calvin turned around, pipes at the ready, to back up Zion in case the corpses got too close. He whirled around and pointed his weapon at the guard tower. I'll burn this whole fucking place to the ground if you don't open those fucking gates right now he bellowed. Both the guards went white as sheets and hastily opened the doors. The trio bustled inside and helped pull the gate shut as soon as they were inside to keep the horde from slipping in after them. Several guards rushed up to reinforce the gate with wood, metal, and their own bodies, pushing back against the smacking corpses on the other side. What the fuck are you people doing? A tall, red-headed woman stormed over to the trio, eyes blazing. Zion reared on her, his own expression dark with anger. You tried to get us fucking killed, he yelled. You led the horde here, she screamed back, pointing at the doors. If they get in, then all of my people are fucked. 
Monique put a hand on her brother's chest, pushing him back from the woman, who looked ready to wring his neck with her bare hands. Listen, we appreciate you letting us in, and we want to help you, she said calmly, hoping to defuse the situation. We were with Adam and his group on the south side of the bridge, and he said you were friendly and could help us. The woman grunted, crossing her arms, as if petulantly accepting this information because of affiliation with Adam. These gates aren't going to be strong enough to keep a large horde at bay. What the fuck are you going to do to fix this? Zion stepped forward. We can lure them away for you. We need to move on, but we need transportation to do that. And why should I give you anything? The woman scowled. Look, lady, we're in the goddamn apocalypse, he said, throwing up his hands to emphasize their surroundings. I don't know if you've noticed, but humans are in short supply, and we need to work together if we have any hope of surviving the zombies in the end of the world. We had a home, a self-sufficient place with gardens and people living, and a group of power-tripping military assholes came and took over, exiling a bunch of us and are doing God knows what to our people. We need to save them. The woman's gaze softened as she took in the trio's defeated bodies but determined eyes. Name's Wendy, she said gruffly and waved for them to follow her. This way. She led them through the fortress, which looked to be about a hundred people strong. I'll also need a rifle, Calvin piped up, trotting after them. Wendy pursed her lips. I don't know if I can part with that, she said with a shake of her head. Ammo is a very limited resource. Oh, don't worry about that. I won't need much ammo, he assured her. I can shoot the squirrel off a tick at a hundred yards. She raised an eyebrow as they paused in front of a large bug tent. Shouldn't that be the other way around? Not if you're hungry, Calvin shrugged. She sighed and motioned to the tent, which was their makeshift armory. I also need my sister to stay here, Zion spoke up. Monique gasped. No, no way, I'm coming with you, Z. He shook his head. I don't think you're prepared for what needs to happen when we get back to the complex, he said gently, taking her shoulders in his hands. And I'd be able to focus a lot better if I knew you were safe, here. Tears welled up in her big eyes as she wound her fists in her shirt. She knew he was right, but she didn't have to like it. Fuck you, big brother, she said weakly, and he pressed his lips affectionately against her forehead. She can stay. Wendy replied gently, crossing her arms. But nothing comes for free. We all earn our keep here. Monique's got lots of skills, Calvin announced as he came out of the tent, rifle in hand. Don't worry about that. Wendy turned back to Zion. There's a park and ride three blocks east of here, with cars that seem to be in working order. But there aren't any keys, she said. He grinned. Oh, don't worry about that, he said. Her radio crackled. The gate's starting to buckle, somebody's voice yelled through, and she motioned to the wall behind her. You can go up and over here. She tugged on a rope hanging there, and the trio approached. Monique pulled her brother in for a tight hug. You come back for me, you hear, she said. Don't worry, Monique, I'll keep your bro alive and kicking, Calvin said, puffing his chest out. She laughed wetly and wiped her eyes, punching the wiry stoner in the shoulder. You'd better not die on me either, you little shit, she said affectionately, and he winked at her before slinging the rifle over his shoulder and grabbing the rope in his hands. Zion extended his hand to Wendy. Thank you, he said sincerely. 
She took it with a nod. Just hurry. Chapter 12 Calvin hit the ground behind Zion, rifle in hand, and they crept around the corner to see about a hundred zombies pushing against the front gate of the small community. Zion leapt out, banging his bat sword against the asphalt to cause a ruckus. Hey, cocksuckers, he bellowed. You hungry? I'm packing a giant one for you. Calvin kept pace with him as they tore off for the parking area. We maybe should have waited until we hotwired the car, he huffed breathlessly. The lot was fenced in, but the walkway that used to be locked up behind a gate was hanging open instead. Zion shoved the wiry young man ahead of him, and Calvin tore open the driver's side door of an impressively shiny truck, popping open the console to grab the wires. Zion stood in the walkway entrance, which was about double his width, smacking his weapon back and forth in an impressive display of zombie dominance. The bodies began to pile up, but the horde just kept coming, climbing over their fallen brethren and forcing him to back inside the lot. More flooded in, spreading out of the bottleneck to surround him in a more threatening way, the stench of rotting flesh overwhelming. The truck roared to life, and he darted around to the passenger's side, hopping in just as Calvin slammed his own door shut and popped the vehicle into gear. He mowed down the zombies ahead of them, crashing right through the remaining gate as if it were made of paper. Bodies flew everywhere, but what was left of the horde was sufficiently distracted from the small community, at least. Hope swelled inside of the duo as they sped towards their home. If there was anything left of it, that was. Do you think everyone is okay? Calvin asked quietly, jaw tense. Zion shook his head, more than a little taken aback at the sight of his young friend being serious for once. Can't say for sure, but we'll do what we can. We'll take out every one of those fuckers and pick up the pieces after as best we can. They drove off of the beaten path just as the sun was setting, cutting the engine in the trees to keep a low profile. We'll rest up here for a bit while we wait for nightfall. Zion said, jumping down from the truck. Calvin rummaged around in the back seat and found a backpack full of crunchy snacks, cheese puffs and salt and vinegar chips. There was a bottle of water, too, which was a godsend. They lounged in the grass, leaning up against a thick tree trunk, cracking open bags and sharing the bottle of water as if it were Chardonnay and smoked cheese. In the apocalypse, it almost was. Well, since there's a good chance we're not going to live to see the sunrise, I gotta know. Calvin trailed off around a mouthful of cheese puffs. Are the rumors true about all the gang shit? Zion swallowed his own mouthful and took a swig of water, contemplating. Yeah, he replied with a shrug. Though I don't know what the specifics of all the rumors are. But I wasn't a gang back on the West Coast, and I did some pretty horrendous shit for them. Why? Calvin blurted and then clamped his mouth shut as if he regretted asking anything. Zion shook his head. They were like my family, you know. I mean, I've got Monique, and our ma was out there too, but I didn't know any other life. They were my brothers, and they took care of me so that I could take care of my sister and ma. He took a swig of water and then handed the bottle back to his companion. And I guess there was a level of security that I couldn't get anywhere else. I was an enforcer which meant that I was the guy that went out to make sure people paid their dues and their respects. If somebody was fucking around, 
or doing something that offended the gang. I went to enforce the rules. Wow, Calvin breathed and swallowed audibly. That's pretty badass. I guess, Sion replied with a shrug. At the time, I felt like hot shit, you know? Chest puffed out, gang at my back, working hard to make him proud. I didn't have to worry about nothing or nobody. People fucking cowered when I entered a room, and if they didn't, they would be by the time I was leaving. Now, after the end of the world, I guess it all just seems so petty. I feel guilty for a lot of the shit I did. I disappointed my ma a lot of the time, and I tried to justify what I was doing because I was taking care of her. But when she put her foot down and told me she'd disown me if I didn't get Monique the fuck out of L.A., well, family comes first. Calvin nodded. I guess shit must have gotten pretty hairy for that to happen, he replied, playing absentmindedly with the cap of the bottle. But at least, even if you do feel guilty about some of the shit you did, it wasn't totally petty. You got all kinds of fighting experience to use in the apocalypse. Zion chuckled. That's what I keep telling myself. He shook his head, sobering a little and looking at the inky sky. I just wish I knew if she was alive. I wish we'd have brought her with us. If I'd have known this shit was going to happen. Ah, man, you couldn't have predicted the zombie apocalypse. Come on, Calvin said. His companion got to his feet. Now you sound like my sister. Speaking of your sister, don't even fucking say it, Zion snapped good-naturedly, pointing a finger at his wiry friend. If we live through the night and save our home, you can profess your undying love to her face, and then we'll get to watch as she skins you. The blood drained from Calvin's face, and he nodded jerkily. Deal. He got up, stretching his back and slinging his new rifle over his shoulder. So what's the plan? At the back of the parking garage, there's an exit-only door that probably won't be guarded, Zion said as he began to trudge through the near-blinding darkness of the forest. Calvin followed the sound of his footsteps, brow furrowed. Probably? It's our best chance to sneak inside, came the reply. We'll get up to my apartment and be able to get a lay of the land from there, since the window is pretty central. Then we'll figure out a plan of attack based on where the enemies are. The sound of his knuckles cracking echoed in the thick woods. We show zero mercy, no fucking survivors. We're going to make an example of these bastards. Chapter 13 So if it's exit only, how the hell are we going to get it open? Calvin hissed as the two approached the door, the prediction of it being unguarded having been a good one. Zion ducked around the corner where there was a barred window, still with a missing pane of glass that he remembered. Get ready, he whispered. He slid his weapon through, managing to get his arm through the bars up to the elbow, where his biceps were too wide to fit. He poked the release on the door and then tightened his grip, giving a valiant jab and pushing it open, just enough for Calvin to slip his fingers inside. Zion pulled himself back through the window, and they slipped into the dimly lit parking garage, shutting the door quietly behind them. They stayed low behind the row of cars, though they didn't hear any movement echoing about. They scurried over to the door leading to the main stairwell for the building, but Zion shoved Calvin out of the way at the sound of somebody coming downstairs. Thankfully, it was just one man, and he burst into the parking garage, whistling a jaunty tune and not even paying attention to his surroundings. Zion wasted no time, whacking him in the back of the knees with his bat sword, dropping him easily. Calvin pointed his rifle at the kneeling man, 
who put his hands up over his head obediently. You, he spat, clearly remembering them. His face clenched with anger, but he didn't make a move against them. Zion checked the stairwell for anyone else, but it was clear. Where are all of your men posted? He demanded as he walked back over to their prisoner, tightening his grip on his weapon. The military grunt looked curiously at the weapon that had caused the current throbbing in his legs and wrinkled his nose. Everyone's in the courtyard eating, he said with a sneer. Your people are compliant as kittens. They know they have to cook and entertain us or they die. Entertain? Zion's eyes blazed as he imagined exactly what that meant. Don't worry, the prettier ones are locked away for safekeeping, the man said, licking his lips lewdly. We don't want them to get loose too fast. Zion growled, smashing the blunt end of his weapon into the guy's stomach, winding him. Where are they? He demanded. Room 2145, the guy wheezed, doubled over and gasping for air. Now leave me the fuck alone. Zion snarled, not a fucking chance, before slamming the heavy makeshift weapon down onto the bridge of his nose. The soldier convulsed violently before falling silent. Let's go get him. Chapter 14 Zion used his key to silently open the door to his old apartment, and Calvin carefully closed the door behind them. They did a quick sweep, but found nobody inside, just the mess from the earlier fight. It didn't look like anyone had bothered to stay in here since then, and he was glad that the fuckers at least hadn't defiled his personal space. They moved over to the large window. Thankfully, it was already open, so they could hear everything that was going on outside without drawing attention to themselves. Calvin removed the scope from his rifle and peered out into the courtyard to get a good lay of the land. What have you got, Zion whispered. Nine troops by the fire, four roaming around that I can see, he reported, jaw clenching at the whimpering woman between two of the fire dwellers. He couldn't tell who she was, but it churned his guts. These bastards all had to die. Zion retreated to his bedroom, digging around in the back of his closet for a duffel bag. He pulled out a pair of trusty gloves, homemade out of leather, with four long nails jutting out of the knuckles. He exited the bedroom as Calvin snapped his scope back onto his gun and raised his eyebrows at the new digs. What the fuck are those, he blurted. Zion held up a fist. Made these back in my enforcer days. Effective, but easy to dismantle if the cops were around. Fair enough, Calvin replied with a nod. So where to first? 2145, his companion said immediately. He slung his weapon over his shoulder and cracked open the apartment door, peering through the slit to make sure they didn't have company in the hallway. It was empty, and they crept out, quietly making their way to the corner at the end. Zion peeked slightly around it, seeing a guard lounging on a folding chair just outside of the door to 2145. He lazily flipped the page of a magazine, not really paying attention to his surroundings. Zion held up a hand, palm out, to Calvin, to motion for him to stay put. The sharpshooter nodded, watching as his companion fell into a loose crouch, silently moving forward on the balls of his feet. Seeing such a burly man move with such grace was mind-blowing. Zion soundlessly crept up the hallway towards the guard and was able to make it about eight feet away before he was in the guy's periphery, causing him to leap up. 
The magazine hadn't even hit the ground before his attacker reached him, a sharp uppercut tearing his jaw apart with the nails, puncturing his throat in the process. Calvin came around the corner just in time to see the last breath leave the gurgling man, and Zion turned to open the door to the apartment. There were four women huddled together on the couch, dressed only in lingerie, eyes wide and fearful. They immediately recognized Zion and Calvin, and one of them pointed to the bathroom, where the light was on and the door was ajar. There was an echo of a toilet flush and the sink running, and Zion stood in front of the door, waiting for it to open. When it did, it revealed a man wearing only a towel around his waist, and he froze, eyes the size of saucers at the sight of the intruder standing before him. Zion attacked him immediately, ferocity in his fists, as he tackled the man into the room. Calvin stood with the women, the five of them collectively wincing at the sounds of screams and flesh tearing echoing in the tiled space. A few moments later, Zion calmly emerged, covered in blood. He casually flicked a hunk of skin from one of his claws, and it smacked into the wall, sliding down slowly and leaving a crimson smear on the drywall. One of the girls scurried to the kitchen and came back with a towel, stepping forward to wipe his face. Thank you, she whispered, voice thick. He took the towel and offered her a smile, careful not to touch her after everything she'd probably been through. We're gonna take care of this, he promised. You all hunker down until it's over. He turned to Calvin. Can you get a good vantage point from the balcony here? His wiry friend peered out of the sliding door and nodded. Yes, sir. Wait five minutes, Zion instructed. Then shoot the soldier on the farthest to the right and work your way back to the left. I'll come in on that side and tear these fuckers a new one. One of the girls who he knew as Abby stood up, opening the door to the apartment and glanced down at the fallen soldier there. She wrestled the assault rifle from his cold, dead fingers and stepped back inside, checking and cocking it. I wanna help, she declared. Zion nodded. Sure thing. He motioned to the hallway. I'll take you down to one of the apartments flanking the courtyard. Abby put a hand on her hip, resting the gun on her shoulder, not even phased by her mostly nakedness. Let's go. Chapter 15 Zion stayed low to the ground, pressed up against the far wall of the building, waiting for the firefight to start. He leaned his bat sword against the wall and flexed his knuckles, readying his gloves. Calvin shot first, taking out one of the soldiers on the far side. This spurred a flurry of action, Abby firing from the other end of the building. Somebody had the foresight to snuff out the fire plunging the courtyard into moonlight and obstructing the view of the shooters. It didn't take them long to figure out where to fire back at, and once their attention was drawn, Zion leapt from the shadows. He stabbed his claws into the back of one guy's throat, tearing up and bringing his vocal cords up into his gurgling mouth. Zion put his foot into the guy's back, kicking the corpse off of his hand. He leapt up off of the guy's back, landing on a bench and springing off into the air swinging the bat sword on the way down. He caught a soldier in the jaw, and the guy staggered backwards in shock, grunting, but raised his gun instinctively. Zion kicked up, catching the barrel with his boot just as it fired, and jammed his weapon into the guy's stomach. He doubled over and received a swift knee to the nose, his attacker reveling in the sound of cartilage shattering against his kneecap. 
A nearby soldier cried out in anger at the sight of his bleeding comrade and barreled forwards. Zion clotheslined him with the bat sword and leapt backwards to avoid the blind swinging of the broken-nosed soldier. He jabbed forward, catching the barrel of a gun with his claws, and then shoved forward, pinning the guy's arms into his chest by stabbing him. The soldier screamed in pain as his wrists were pierced into his chest with the blades, and Zion swung his body around as a shield. The soldier he'd clotheslined leapt to his feet and fired, peppering his friend with bullets, and Zion shoved forward, using the sufficiently bloody body as a battering ram into the shooter. The soldier staggered backwards and hit the ground hard, and only then did Zion remove his claws, splattering blood everywhere. He took up the bat sword once again and brought it down hard, caving the two heads together into a mushy pulp that made both indistinguishable to one another. He quickly rolled to the side to avoid a chair being flung in anger and barreled into the back of an unaware soldier. His opponent went chest first into the still hot embers of the fire and tried to push himself back up as his clothes began to smoke. Zion put his full weight into his knees on the guy's back, grinning maniacally as his victim screamed, his shirt catching on fire, and his skin melting, bubbling, fusing into the pit. This was how Holcomb found his enemy as the gunfire died. He stared, jaw clenched, at a blood-soaked Zion, standing triumphantly atop the charred body of his last soldier. The clawed man raised his chin, extended a hand, and waved his primary target forward. Chapter 16 Holcomb raised his weapon immediately, aiming for Zion's kneecaps, but his opponent was too fast. Zion rolled to the left and swung out with the bat sword, the bright moonlight giving the area an ethereal glow after the tungsten of the smoldering soldier wore down. The sergeant leapt back and jutted the butt of his gun forward, catching his opponent in the jaw. Zion simply laughed, spitting a stream of blood to the ground, fainting left and then drop-kicking to the right, catching Holcomb's arm. He followed that with three quick jabs of his claws, hitting nothing vital but doing enough damage to cause the sergeant to lose his weapon. He gave Holcomb a mighty kick in the chest, sending him back onto his ass in the grass. How the fuck are you still alive? The sergeant wheezed through his pain. Zion brought his weapon down hard on his victim's ankle, the shattering of bone drowned out by the blood-curdling scream from the bastard's mouth. I told you, I wasn't done with this life yet, he said. You fucked with the wrong people. Fuck you. Holcomb groaned between ragged breaths, holding his battered leg. You're making a big fucking mistake. Zion barked a laugh. No, it's you that made the mistake, he sneered. You left me alive. He jabbed his weapon into the bastard's gut, winding him once again. Civilians walked out of the shadows, fearful relief on their faces at the sight of their returning savior and the bodies of their captors littering the ground. At least make it quick, Holcomb moaned. No, but thank you for asking, Zion replied, as brightly as if he were declining an extra helping of ice cream. Calvin, you still up there? He called up to the balcony. Down here now, his wiry companion said from the front steps of the building, jogging down. He had his rifle in his hands and pointed it at Holcomb as he approached, keeping his eye on the sergeant. 
Zion rubbed his chin. Do you still have that spool of chain with your greenhouse supplies? He asked, and his comrade nodded. Jeff, head on over to the supply area and grab that for me, will ya? Zion instructed a nearby dweller, and the man scurried off to complete his instructions. Holcomb hissed as his would-be executioner leaned forward, pressing his foot down on his busted one. He leaned his elbow on his knee, his blood-spattered body, looking like a slasher film crossed with an after-school special. I took this place fair and square, the sergeant stammered petulantly. Zion raised an eyebrow. Fair and square? There were nothing fair about it, he snapped. You fuckers snuck in at night and surprised attacked us, beating and raping innocent people. He extended his hand to Jeff, who had returned with a length of chain, clinking in his hands. Now we're taking it back, fair and fucking square. He leaned over and wrapped the chain around his prisoner's neck, tightening it before securing the links together. Holcomb let go of his leg to grasp at the metal now tight around his throat, eyes widening in terror. Get up, cocksucker, Zion demanded, straightening up to his full height. We're taking a walk. He jerked on the chain as if to accentuate his point. The sergeant cried out as he fell forward onto his hands. I can't fucking walk, you broke my ankle. Guess I'm dragging you then. Zion replied with a wistful sigh, as if this were a great inconvenience to him. He jerked on the chain again, reveling in the strangled gag that came from Holcomb as he did so. The sergeant scrambled to get to his one good leg, not wanting to be dragged by the neck, and hobbled after Zion as best he could. Calvin followed, rifle still trained on him, and the apartment dwellers made a path for the procession as the trio headed inside. Zion turned to address them as he got to the front doors. You all stay right here in the courtyard, he said, and you won't miss a second of what's going to happen to the good sergeant. He reached over and patted Holcomb's head like a child. His prisoner scowled, but there was fear in his eyes, and Zion relished it. He led the man inside, where four women stood in a line, dressed in a mishmash of clothes. The last one was Abby, and she stood with her assault rifle, still dressed only in her lingerie. She lashed out and grabbed Holcomb's crotch, squeezing and twisting as he squealed like a pig and fell to his knees. She let go of him and looked him dead in the eye. Your dick was so small I couldn't even feel it, she said, voice low. Calvin barked a laugh. Well, that explains a fuck of a lot. Zion gave the chain a yank and Holcomb whimpered, leaning against the wall for support. His arms hung limply at his sides, not even sure where on his body hurt the most anymore. And between Calvin continually jabbing him in the ass with his rifle, and Zion half choking him with the chain, he didn't know how he even made it up the stairs. When they exited the roof access, Holcomb's stomach sank. Don't, he pleaded, but it came out as a strangled gasp as Zion dragged him across the roof to the front of the building. The new leader of the complex was officially out of fucks to give, and he grabbed the back of the sergeant's collar, holding him up to look out over the expectant faces of the civilians he'd tortured. Calvin secured the loose end of the chain around a nearby beam. This is what happens to those that cross us, Zion bellowed, and slashed his claws across Holcomb's stomach, kicking him off of the edge of the roof. The sergeant didn't even have time to scream before he hit the end of the chain the momentum sending his guts spewing through the hole in his stomach. 
His neck didn't quite break, leaving him to sputter until he fell still, swaying gently back and forth, innards drip, drip, dripping on the asphalt below. Zion spread his bloody hands. This is what happens, he said loudly over the heads of his new flock. Brent is dead because he was fucking stupid. He put us in this position with his stupidity, and that stupidity ended his life. It ended Jerry and Corey's lives, Tom's too. It made the rest of our lives a hell of a lot harder than they needed to be. I keep getting asked if the rumors are true about me. He paused for effect. I think it's fucking clear that yes, they are. And guess whose skills saved your asses, protected you? Mine. So going forward, I'm in fucking charge, and you won't be getting tortured and killed on my watch, because I'll torture and kill anyone who fucking tries. Monique is at a settlement in the city, and we met with a few very nice groups of people who were integral to our survival in coming back here to save our home. We're going to connect with these people, trade with them, form relationships so that we can be strong together. That being said, I won't take any unnecessary risks. I won't put your lives in danger with lack of intelligence nor blindness to the truth but I'm not going to hold you here and bend you to my will. You have a choice. He gripped the cement ledge and leaned forward, jaw set. What do you say? The roar was thunderous for such a small group of people. The relieved citizens, cheering for their new leader that had come back to save them from their fate. Calvin stepped up and clapped his comrade on the back. Zion nodded at him and then raised a blood-covered clawed fist to his subjects below. End of book seven. Epilogue, State of the Union. Chapter one, day zero plus seven. John Teeter and General Adams hovered over a desk, sifting through a veritable mountain of paperwork. There were maps, diagrams, and more information than they felt a single human could ever hope to digest. They were exhausted, but determined, and knew they had a job to do. They were quietly studying, attempting to continue to comprehend information in their tired minds, when the general's lead researcher, Whitney Hill, entered with another stack of papers. Here are the latest East Coast reports, she said, as she set the stack down on the desk. She was a fiery redhead with a no-nonsense attitude, and it showed with her crisp, casual business suit, even in the apocalypse. John scrubbed his hands down his tired face. I thought we already had the East Coast reports. Those were state-by-state state reports, Adams replied. Given that the invisible lines on a map don't really matter anymore, I had Whitney combine it into a regional report. And to clarify, she put in, when I say East Coast, I mean everything east of the Mississippi River. I'm preparing two more reports, one for the West Coast, which is everything west of the Rockies and central is everything in between. John groaned. Son of a bitch. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly through clenched teeth. Okay, well, I suppose going forward this will be easier. Although without reading a single page, I'm going to assume that the situation is still fucked. The redhead nodded gravely. Six ways from Sunday, John. Six ways from Sunday. How is your research team holding up? Adams asked. She shrugged. About as good as can be expected, she replied. Most of them have lost contact with their families, and they're doing their best to handle it. A couple of them have military spouses, so they've gotten word that they've been evacuated to the sea. That's the closest thing we have to good news. 
I'm guessing that's a pretty common theme throughout the entirety of the bunker, John piped up. Whitney nodded. Unfortunately, it is. The phone on the desk beeped, and John smacked it haphazardly to trigger the speakerphone. Yes, can we help you? Sir, the president is ready for you in the war room. A female voice came through. Thank you, Vicky, John replied. Please inform him that we're on our way. Yes, sir, came the reply, and then a click. The two men stood up from their desk, gathering up a few of the documents that they knew they would need to show. Whitney, I'd like you to join us in the war room for the meeting, Adam said, and she blinked at him in surprise. I'm more than happy to assist you, General, but everything I know is in these reports, she explained. I'm not sure how much help I would be. Ma'am, the General and I are both a bit past our prime, John said with a chuckle. Frankly, we could use a set of young eyes that can throw out information quickly. We've read the reports, but you've been living and breathing this for a solid week. You would be a great asset to us in there. The redhead nodded. Just let me tell my team what I need them to focus on next, and I'll be in there. Thank you, Whitney, Adam said sincerely, and the woman left briskly. John sighed as the duo began the walk to the war room. Let's hope the president is in a good mood today, because I don't think we have a single bit of positive news to deliver to him. Chapter 2 General Adams and John entered the war room, which was empty save for President Williams at the head of the table. His presence seemed to fill the room, despite the fact that he looked like he'd aged a thousand years in the span of a week. General, John, thank you for coming. Williams greeted them, motioning to spots to his right. Please take a seat and we'll get started. Mr. President, Adams said, I've asked my top research assistant, Whitney Hill, to join us for this meeting. Williams' brow furrowed. Do you not have all the information? He eyed the documents the men set down on the table. Yes, sir, but she knows it better than anyone in the building. The general assured him. She'll make sure we don't miss anything. The president sighed but nodded. Very well. Vicky poked her head into the room. Mr. President, General, would anybody like some coffee? Gentlemen, Williams asked. John raised his hand. Yes, I would love some, please. I could use a cup as well, Adams added. Vicky, go ahead and make a full pot and bring four cups, please, the president instructed. Yes, Mr. President. She nodded and left, nearly knocking into Whitney as the redhead headed in. Apologies for the wait, she gushed. It's perfectly all right, Miss Hill, Williams assured her and motioned to the seat on his left. Please take a seat and we can get started. She sat across from John and laid out several reports on the large conference table in front of her. All right, Williams said. Let's have it. What's the situation looking like? The trio looked at each other, and John finally shrugged his shoulders. There is no good way to put this, so I'm just going to throw it out there, he declared. The world as we knew it is no more. The virus has spread worldwide. As best as we can tell, every country on Earth has been affected. The president nodded gravely. How are our allies holding up? Western Europe was hit almost as hard as we were, since several infected flights from New York and Atlanta landed there shortly after the outbreak, Adams said. Given their near-complete lack of warning, they were overwhelmed before they knew what hit them. South America was also hit especially hard, since they not only had no warning, they didn't have the sophisticated communication systems to alert their populations. 
He flipped through a few pages of his notes. My apologies, Mr. President, he huffed as he dug through his reports, finally sighing and motioning across the table. Whitney, would you be so kind as to cover the Far East? My pleasure, General, she replied. Mr. President, Asia has fared a little better with the plague since they had roughly a day's warning before it struck. Granted, that's a low bar, considering the devastation most nations have faced. Out of all the countries, China was hit the hardest, with an estimated billion dead already. Most of the Asian nations, China included, were able to set up protective shelters for their best and brightest. And let's be honest, John piped up, those with the best connections. Very true, Whitney replied with a nod. However, there is a bit of concerning news regarding South Korea. Not wanting to waste an opening, North Korea pushed across the border a few days ago. We don't know how successful they were, as communication lines with the Korean Peninsula went down shortly thereafter. Williams furrowed his brow. What about our troops stationed there? He pursed his lips. They were successfully evacuated to sea and are on course for home, Whitney assured him, as are most of our troops worldwide. The president took a deep breath, folding his hands in front of him. It pains me to know that I'm the president that oversaw the complete and total withdrawal of America from the world stage, he said. However, I do take some comfort in knowing that if we aren't successful in the coming weeks, nobody is going to be around to be angry with me. There were some light chuckles around the table, despite the morbidity of the joke. Thank you for your update, Miss Hill, Williams said. Now what can you- Vicky knocked at the door and poked her head in. I'm sorry to interrupt, Mr. President, she said, struggling with her serving tray. John leapt from his seat and held the door for her. Nonsense, he declared. You are providing us with the elixir of life. You can interrupt us anytime you like, provided that pot is full. She smiled at him, relieved nobody was angry with her. If you need anything else, please let me know. I'll be right outside. She set the tray down on the table. Thank you, Vicky, William said, and she nodded before leaving, closing the door quietly behind her. There was a quiet moment of contentment as everyone poured their coffee, taking a few long sips, before focusing back on their task. Okay, Williams finally said, setting his mug in front of him. Where were we? Oh yes, the home front. How bad are things here? Generally speaking, the larger the city, the harder it got hit, John explained. Cities with international airports were the worst. Obviously, the Texas big four cities were decimated as they were closest to ground zero. Austin and San Antonio are nearly a complete loss, partially because of the bombing runs we did in an attempt to distract the news media and buy us precious hours to enact our plan, which is going surprisingly well, I might add. Forgive the interruption, John. Williams cut in and put up a hand. But I'd like to hear more about how hard we were hit before moving on to how we're fighting back. Of course, Mr. President, John replied, flipping through his notes. Cities like New York, Boston, LA, Atlanta, and Chicago are near total losses. The streets were flooded with zombies before anybody knew what was happening. Those who weren't infected or killed are trapped in their buildings without any hope of escape or rescue. Our best guess is 98% dead in those cities, and will be close to 100% within a few weeks. Williams nodded grimly. What about overall numbers? The two men began to dig through their papers. The president turned to Whitney. Miss Hill, why don't you field this one? Of course, Mr. President she replied, turning one page of one of her reports. 
conservatively. We're putting the number of dead at 85%, but more than likely, it's probably at 90%. Unless drastic measures are taken in the next day or two, our projections have 98% of the population dead by the end of the month. Mother of God, Williams balked, all of the color draining from his face. Why so high? A wide variety of factors, she replied. Aside from the obvious zombie attacks, there is a dwindling food supply which will not only cause starvation, but prompt violence as groups of desperate people fight for the scraps that remain. We're also well into flu season, and without easy access to medication, it won't take much for it to decimate a group of survivors. The president shook his head, chewing his lower lip for a moment, contemplating the near total destruction of his country. He finally sighed. Does anybody have any good news? He asked, a hint of desperation in his voice. General, how is your stadium plan going? We were able to secure approximately 27,000 key personnel at 18 stadium fortresses throughout the country, Adams said. We have everything from engineers to scientists to gunsmiths, everything we need to mount a proper war effort when the time comes. And these stadiums are secure and well-stocked? Williams asked. Adams nodded. That's correct. They are locked down and have enough basic supplies to keep them afloat until their greenhouses begin bearing fruit. The president raised an eyebrow. Okay, maybe I'm bad at math, but if 10 to 15% of the country is still alive, then where are they all at? If we only have 30-some-odd thousand in our fortresses and a few hundred thousand troops, that leaves about 30 million people unaccounted for. Small towns have proven to be very resilient, John explained. Not only are they statistically prone to be armed to the teeth, but their isolation from large populations have allowed them to turn their entire towns into fortified outposts. Well, we haven't been actively looking for them on satellite, we have discovered the existence of a few hundred of these communities, Whitney added. In all likelihood, there could be thousands of them. That is fantastic news, Williams exclaimed. Small-town America is what put me in the White House, and knowing they are still alive and kicking will certainly give a great boost to my re-election campaign. He barked a laugh, and the others followed suit, happy to have the tension broken, if only for a moment. So how can we help them out? He asked. Well, Mr. President, right now we have a quarter of a million troops sitting in rural Kansas, Adams said. A lot of this year's harvest has yet to be shipped out, so there is a plethora of food. If we spare a couple thousand men, we could get them running convoys to these communities. That is an amazing idea, General, Williams said. I want to make this our top priority. Use any means necessary. John took a quick breath. With all due respect, Mr. President, before we do anything else, we need to figure out what to do with the military. Why do we have to do anything with them? Williams asked. You all just told me that rural communities are flourishing and are relatively safe, and they've got to be extra safe for the greatest military in the world there. He waved his hand in a dramatic arc. General, just have them set up a perimeter and protect Kansas. Turn it into the Heartland Safe Zone. It will be a beacon of hope that radiates throughout the land. John and Whitney glanced at each other with drawn expressions. Sure, John said gently. We could do that, assuming the goal is to turn Kansas into the largest all-you-can-eat zombie buffet in the world. Williams glared at him. I don't appreciate the attitude, John. Well, sometimes a little attitude is necessary to get the point across. His confidant shot back. Williams folded his hands in front of him. 
Very well, state your case. Well, for starters, John said, they're surrounded. They're in the middle of nowhere, the president cried. Have you ever driven through Kansas? It's like God was creating a civilization for the ages, but ran out of building material after Wichita. Yes, I've driven through Kansas, Mr. President, John replied gently. I've also looked at a map and can see that there are eight major cities within a couple hundred miles of where our troops are. There are already reports coming in that tens of thousands of zombies are finding their way out of Kansas City and Oklahoma City. Just yesterday, there was a major conflict outside of Oklahoma City, Adams piped up. Took 40,000 troops, the better part of a day to stem the tide. And that was only a fraction of the zombie population in the city. And that's just one city, John continued. Imagine if Dallas or Chicago or Denver empty out and head towards the troops. Hell, imagine if all of them do. General, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that our fighting men and women don't have enough bullets to handle that kind of horde. Are there enough raw bullets? Adam shrugged. Perhaps. Is there enough manpower to handle multiple fronts with that level of zombie power? Absolutely not. William sat back and sighed. Okay, so the heartland isn't the answer. Where should they go? Texas is out, that's for damn sure, John replied. Adams nodded. We're going to need a place that has farmland. And oil, Whitney added. And that is geographically isolated, John said. Adams leaned forward. And as limited in population as possible. Well, that eliminates the entirety of the East Coast, Whitney said. What about Florida, Williams piped up. Surrounded by water on three sides, they'd only have to defend the northern part of the state. That's a great plan the redhead retorted, until a hurricane comes. The general raised a hand to soften the blow of the president's idea shot down so brutally. What about Arizona and Nevada? Limited population, access to some West Texas oil fields. Farmland may be an issue, but plenty of sun for greenhouses. Plus, who doesn't like Vegas? Williams rolled his eyes. Too much of a risk of California emptying out and overrunning us. John shook his head. I mean, unless you want to pull a Lex Luthor and nuke the San Andreas fault line. The president raised his hands. If you could possibly come up with a solution that doesn't involve me becoming a supervillain, I would greatly appreciate it. Oh, come on, Mr. President, you'd look great bald. John grinned. Williams ran a hand through his hair. Might become a necessity when we run out of shampoo. The men shared a laugh when Whitney shoved a map into the center of the table. Seattle, she said. There was an awkward silence before the president leaned forward and asked, come again? The answer is Seattle, she repeated. It's more or less geographically isolated with the Rockies on the east and the ocean on the west. Portland is only a couple hours to the south, but with only one real path to get there. Vancouver is a bit of a concern since we wouldn't want to get into a two front war, but we could utilize our air superiority and take out the bridges in the city. Williams blinked at her. You want me to authorize a military strike on a foreign land? They're Canada, what are they going to do? Whitney shrugged. Hell, they'll probably apologize to us for being an inconvenience. There was a chuckle, but she didn't even crack a smile as she leaned over the map, pointing. There's access to oil, farmland, and we'll have a port, so our troops coming back from Asia will have a place to land. The men sobered up and glanced at each other, nodding their heads. Well done, Whitney, John said. 
I believe you may have picked the invasion point. I commend your research, Miss Hill, Williams added. Do you happen to have any thoughts on how to move a quarter million troops from Kansas to the Pacific Northwest? She bit her lip. Still working on that one, sir. This might be a good time to get General Stevens on the phone, Adams piped up. He's in charge of the troops down there. Williams leaned forward and pushed a button on the conference phone. Vicky, he asked. Yes, Mr. President, she replied immediately. Can you get General Stevens on the line for us? The president asked. He's heading up our troops in Kansas. Yes, sir, Vicky replied. I'll call when I have him on the line. Thank you, Williams said. Looks like we have time for another cup of coffee. Chapter Three The quartet studied various reports, enjoying a second cup of hot brew that soothed them to their bones. They couldn't help but ride the high of having something to plan for, something versatile and productive to do, despite the situation of the world falling apart around them. The phone beeped, and Williams tapped it. Mr. President, I have General Stevens on the line for you, Vicky said. The president nodded. Thank you, he said. There was a click, and he cleared his throat. General Stevens, this is President Williams. Sir, Stevens replied. I also have General Adams, top advisor John Teeter, and top researcher Whitney Hill, the president added. Gentlemen, ma'am, Stevens said. Williams set down his mug of coffee. General, can you please give us an update on the ground there? Certainly, sir, Stevens replied cordially. The last 12 hours or so have been trying. A horde of nearly 50,000 strong started migrating out of Oklahoma City, and another one about half that size has started coming out of Kansas City. We were able to move the necessary men around to stem the tide, and both fronts are now pacified. General, is there any indication of other mass migrations of zombies towards your location? Adams asked. Negative, General, Stevens confirmed. Typically, it's a few hundred here and there, but nothing more widespread yet. That said, I do have significant manpower stationed on every major interstate and highway coming out of the large cities as a precaution. We should be fine for the moment, but if both of those cities empty out at once, we might be in a bit of trouble. General, this is John Teeter, John cut in. We have assumed that might be the case and have come up with a target destination for the troops under your command. Guessing it's the Pacific Northwest, Stevens replied, and the room fell silent. Whitney shook her head. Seattle, to be specific, but how did you know about that? We literally came up with the idea a minute ago. Just made logical sense, as I'm sure you've already determined, the general said. Natural barriers, access to vital goods. Williams leaned forward. Well, since you seem to be a step ahead of us here, do you have any bright ideas on how to move a quarter million men halfway across the country? With the supply lines out of commission, it's unlikely there is enough fuel to travel via standard transport, Whitney mused. As a matter of fact, I do, Stevens cut in. Yesterday, I sent a small scout team north to commandeer a train from the yards in North Platte. I heard from them a few hours ago, and they were having success charting a course north, clearing the way for us to use the remaining trains as a transport to the northwest. Williams blinked at the phone and clapped his hands together. General, I must say, I'm impressed by your initiative. Do they have an ETA on clearing the path? It's really hard to tell at this point, Mr. President, Stevens replied. It's going to be dependent on what sort of human resistance they run into and how many abandoned trains are clogging up the rail lines. Understood, General, Williams said. 
but give me your best guess. I promise I won't hold you to it. Stevens paused for a moment. Ballpark, he finally said. Seven to ten days. Once the route is clear, it will take less than a week to shift our assets to Seattle. Very good, General, Williams said, and then looked around the table. Does anybody have anything else? Whitney leaned forward. General Stevens? Yes, ma'am, came the reply. We have a loose plan in place to supply the civilian strongholds that have popped up around the country, mostly in small communities, she explained. We are going to require your assistance on this. What can I do, ma'am? He asked. I'm going to be working on the logistics once this meeting is concluded, she assured him. However, if you want to start finding long-haul truckers with rigs, that will be a huge help. We're also going to need two- and three-man teams to accompany them for safety. Consider it done, ma'am. Stevens assured her. Whitney nodded. Thank you, General. I'll be in touch soon. Thank you, General, Williams added. Mr. President, Stevens replied, and then there was a click. Adams, if I didn't know any better, I'd say Stevens is gunning for your position, the president teased. Adams barked a laugh. Pretty sure the only reason he's not in my position is because I have a few years on him. He's a valuable asset and is going to do a lot of good. There was a knock at the door. Come in, Vicky, Williams said. She poked her head in. Mr. President, we have a satellite uplink with our fleet in the Gulf of Mexico, as you requested. Thank you, Vicky. Please patch them through, he instructed, and she nodded before disappearing again. John raised an eyebrow. Something special planned, Mr. President? Yes, Williams replied with a somber nod. I requested that our head researcher give us an update on the virus. Chapter four. Hello, Williams asked into the conference phone. Who am I speaking with, please? Um, a nervous young voice came back. My name is Ben Jackson, sir. Hello, Ben, this is President Williams, he said formally. I'm here with John Teeter, General Adams, and Whitney Hill. Ben cleared his throat. Hello, everyone. Ben, please don't take this as an insult, Williams said gently but you sound rather young to be heading up research on this virus. Yes, Mr. President, I am young, Ben replied, and cleared his throat again. When he spoke again, his voice was a little stronger. I was a graduate student working under Dr. Alveson. On the day this nightmare began, we were brought the research direct from the bioterrorist compound to analyze. I was subsequently tracked down and brought to this research ship to help the other scientists decipher what Dr. Alveson had discovered. Ben, this is John Teeter, John cut in. We all appreciate the work that you've done. And again, please don't take this the wrong way. But is there nobody with more experience heading up the research? Not on this vessel, sir, Ben replied. Or in the fleet, for that matter. This is an extremely specialized area of research, and there aren't a lot of us going around. However, we have been able to reach a few experts who were evacuated to the football stadiums around the country. At the moment, though, nobody has a fully functional lab set up, so for the time being, I'm all you've got. There was a moment of awkward silence, until Whitney leaned forward. Well, Ben, why don't you give us an update on what you've found so far, she asked. With pleasure, ma'am, he replied, his voice no longer shaking. As you know, the virus is airborne, and according to several models we've run, approximately 99.95% of the world's population has been infected. Only ones spared at the moment are those on remote islands in secluded jungle areas. 
and anybody with the A blood type has already turned. In your research, have you been able to make any progress towards a cure? Williams asked. Ben paused. A cure, sir? He swallowed audibly. Well, some of the preliminary tests we've done have shown that it's theoretically possible to neutralize the virus in a victim. However, we haven't found a way to administer that outside of a laboratory setting. And in all honesty, it would be a waste of time, Whitney cut in. Anyone who was bitten would die from the bacterial infection of the bites, not to mention the damage caused to the body from going without food and water for extended periods of time. Well, if not a cure, what about a vaccine? Williams asked. Again, in theory, yes, I believe a vaccine should be possible, Ben replied. The president smiled and took a sip of his coffee. That is fantastic news, son, fantastic news. I think we should be moving forward with this immediately. Mr. President, John said carefully, I believe that would be a waste of our extremely limited resources. William set his mug down a little harder than necessary. I disagree, John. Mr. President, I don't say this lightly, but if you choose to use our resources on coming up with a vaccine, it's going to get a lot of people killed, John insisted. William sat up ramrod straight. You're being overdramatic. On the contrary, sir, my assessment is dead on, John argued. Noted, John, the president replied, and then turned back to the phone. Ben, I want your top priority to be the vaccine. No, John stood up from his chair and smacked the table hard. This is the wrong course, and people will die as a result. We don't have time to be messing around with a worthless vaccine. William stood up as well, drawing up to his full height, which was considerably taller than his angry subordinate. You are out of line, John, he bellowed. John ignored him. Ben, are you still with us? He asked. Ben hesitated. Yes, sir, he replied quietly. Hypothetical for you, John said. Let's say everything goes smoothly, and you get every single thing right on the first try. You get the perfect human-safe vaccine on the first go, and your first set of human trials go perfectly. What's the timetable on that? Uh, Ben stammered. Five, may, maybe six months? And what sort of facilities would you need in order to produce millions of vaccines? John continued. Not to mention what materials you'd need or how to distribute it. I honestly don't know, sir, came the nervous reply. I know that there are a few facilities that could handle that level of production, but I have no idea if they'd have the resources required, since I don't know what all is going into the vaccine. Ben, I'm going to put you on hold for a minute, John informed him. The president and I have something to discuss. Don't go anywhere now. I'm not going anywhere, sir, Ben said firmly. John hit the mute button on the conference phone, and William sank back down into his chair, the facts sinking in slowly. Mr. President, John declared, we have a much, much larger threat to our remaining population than zombie infections. Common viruses like the flu will kill far more people than someone getting bitten, surviving, and turning. The reality is at this point, Mr. President, Whitney cut in, that most people who are killed by zombies are going to be mostly devoured, so even if they do reanimate, they won't pose a threat. The president scrubbed his hands down his face. I hear you both, he assured them, and you make great points. However, one day, and one day soon, we are going to retake part of this country. Civilians are going to leave their fortifications and come to our strongholds. 
If we are going to keep the peace and succeed in rebuilding civilization, people will need to have their minds put at ease. They are going to have to know that their neighbor isn't going to turn into a zombie in the middle of the night because they are hiding a bite. He clasped his hands on the table in front of him. This is why we need the vaccine. Adams took a deep breath. How about a compromise? All eyes turned to him, and the president motioned for him to continue. Set aside 10% of time and resources towards developing a vaccine. The general began. Keep the focus on what is necessary now, which is developing the flu vaccine and getting it distributed. As we get closer to securing the Northwest, we can ramp up production on the zombie vaccine. People will gladly remain vigilant, especially if they know a vaccine is on the way. Williams raised an eyebrow. John, are you good with that? I am, sir. John nodded firmly. Good, the president replied. Oh, and Whitney, add finding a flu vaccine production facility to your list of tasks. The redhead scribbled a note on one of her pages. Yes, sir. Williams reached over and unmuted the phone. Thank you for holding, Ben. My pleasure, sir, the young man replied. For the foreseeable future, your primary objective is to come up with basic, everyday vaccines and medications, Williams said. Treating the flu, providing insulin, common things that keep people alive. Ben paused. What about my research, sir? I want you to set aside 10% of your time to work on a vaccine, Williams explained. If you want to assign tasks to researchers in our fortresses who have limited supplies, please feel free to do so at your discretion. Thank you, sir. I won't let you down, Ben replied. I have no doubt, son, Williams assured him. And you have my assistant Vicky's direct line, so if you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. I will do that, sir, Ben said. The president smiled. We'll be in touch, son. He hit the button to turn off the phone. Okay, I think that about covers everything for today, unless someone has something else we need to discuss. Adams and John both shook their heads, but Whitney dug through her papers. Something else, Miss Hill? Williams asked. She pushed a stack of papers into the center of the table. Yes, Mr. President, there is, she said. We have to talk about isolating the East Coast. Chapter 5 I'm sorry, you want to do what? The president exclaimed. We need to isolate the East Coast and do it sooner rather than later, Whitney replied, voice even. With reports coming in that zombie hordes are breaking out of the cities, we may not have a lot of time. Time to do what? Williams flattened his hands against the table in agitation. You want to barricade the bridges over the Mississippi? She pursed her lips. Not exactly. There was a moment of silence as she let the insinuation hang in the air. William's eyes widened when he realized what she meant. No way in hell. You want to destroy the bridges over the Mississippi? There are 120 million people east of the river. It's actually closer to 150 million, John piped up. And that's exactly the reason we need to do this. Most of those people are zombies now, and conceding the East Coast to them will give us a much better chance at securing the other two-thirds of the country. Unacceptable. The president clenched his fists. Out of the question. What about the survivors who aren't lucky enough to be in a self-sustaining bunker like we are? We can still provide supplies to them, John replied. Williams furrowed his brow. If we destroy all the bridges, then how will we accomplish that? Mr. President, if I may? 
Whitney piped up and handed out sheets to everyone. My team and I have identified six rail line bridges circled on these maps that are located in less populated areas, she explained. We will keep these bridges as the number of zombies that find their way across them will be negligible. This will allow us to move massive amounts of goods across via rail car, and since these are in smaller towns, we can send in strike teams to clear them out and set up bases. William stared at the paper for a moment longer before tossing it down onto the table. General, what are our capabilities? He asked, sounding even more exhausted than he had at the beginning of the meeting. We have several carrier groups off of the East Coast that are equipped with Tomahawk cruise missiles, which will be able to eliminate a large number of the targets, Adams replied. For the upper Mississippi River, we will have to rely on aircraft coming from some of the Kansas airbases that are still manned. Very well, General, Williams relented with a wave of his hand. Make it happen, Adams nodded. Yes, sir. The president pressed his lips into a thin line, staying quiet for a moment before folding his hands in front of him once again. This is a dark time in our nation's history, he finally said. I greatly appreciate each and every one of your efforts, as well as the pushback. No president in the history of our nation has ever faced a threat on this scale, so I'm in uncharted territory. So thank you, all of you. John nodded. It's our pleasure, Mr. President. Now I want us to meet like this every two days, Williams continued. General, I want you to begin work on the Seattle invasion plan. Assume we're going to have troops arriving by rail from the east and sea support from the west. Whitney, I want you to coordinate with General Stevens on getting the caravans going to survivor compounds, as well as cataloging where they are. And if you can spare the manpower, start searching for settlements we haven't found yet. John, I need you to locate a vaccine facility and figure out how we can get to it, secure it, and manufacture what we need. There was a chorus of yes sir through the room. And I want everyone to remember, Williams declared, standing up from his seat and squaring his shoulders, that even though things may be looking down and we have a tough road ahead of us, the state of our union is strong. End of epilogue. Coming soon, the action shifts to a tiny community on the banks of the Mississippi River when the next series, Dead America, the second week, kicks off. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.